Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Wadeley. There are so many messages around the AFL draft last night. I will come back through them. Maybe I'll round out our conversation with this. Mark said this through. Stop being so politically correct, Jared. Last night shows how inequitable the system is. Call it out, Jared. Run your club poorly and the AFL bail you out. North. West Coast, one pick for finishing bottom. Swan as Suns gifted the finals. What more can I say? Plenty. Call it out, Jared. Get some cane corns in here. Stop the powder puff. Good on you, Mark. It's early on a Tuesday morning for that. A 29 pick first round. Uh, so more in that vein and uh, the more measured as we go. Um, I, in my little time off, I had one book to read. I got to the end of Gideon Haig's The Girl in Cabin 350 and thought, what will I read next? And in the post, the very next day came Gideon Haig's next book, Ashes 2023, a cricket classic. What could be more perfect than to go from one to the other? And oh, our timing is deluxe here. Gideon, welcome to the studio. Great to be here, Jared. Are these books 49 and 50? Uh, yeah, they are, actually. Raise yeah, the bat yeah, as and, I've, and I've just received advanced copies of 51, <laughs> and I'm hard <laughs> at work on 52. <laughs> Good stuff. <laughs> I'll talk to you about both of those, but shall we revel a little bit in, in the World Cup achievement? Yeah, 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 absolutely. It was so um, captivating yesterday. How, what have you made of it with uh, 24 hours to ponder it? Well, it had the right outcome, and I'm not just saying that because Australia won, but because if India had won it would have been a question of what was the last six weeks about? You know, uh, It had been so amply scripted in advance that this was going to be just a, a pageant of Indian self-celebration leading up to the, uh, to the inevitable coronation. So to get a result like this, well, that's what sport's all about. That you, in the end, for all the fact that it's 1.3 billion and the world's largest cricket stadium with the Prime Minister in attendance, it's 11 versus 11 on the day. And... Two evenly matched sides played a really good game of cricket. And Australia, unfancied at the top, probably um, by most of us, but maybe not by themselves. You know, having watched them this year in India and in England, uh, you know, this is a team that is capable of striking back from adversity. It's something to be really proud of uh, in that sense. You know, they got absolutely pantsed in the first two sets matches in India earlier this year, two and a half days each. And they came back and won the third. And no one thought they'd do that. Uh, they held their own against England, who were rampant all over them for, uh, for five test series and, uh, and ended up retaining the ashes. And this time round, well, no stars, some virtuosic individual performances for sure, you know, um, by, uh, notably by Maxwell. But in the end, it was 
that team where someone puts their hand up in every single game. Um, yeah, and we all know those teams, don't we? Uh, they just somehow have a knack of making the best of crunch situations. How much of it was a triumph of good decision-making by the right people at the moments that mattered most? Well, look, you know, in the end, you have to make a lot of decisions in a game of cricket. And if even half of them pay off, you've done pretty well. But uh, there was a clarity about uh, Australia's decision-making that was really impressive in terms of selection, in terms of decisions being made at tosses, in terms of uh, in-game match management, uh, and, and a recognition of moments where the game was, was there to be, to be won. Even in that middle period of the um, of the Indian innings, where Australia was constantly permutating its um, its bowlers, knowing that India had this long tail, knowing that Rahul and Kohli couldn't afford to take too many risks, that idea of kind of smuggling cheap overs into the middle of the innings must have been inordinately frustrating. And you know that's how Kohli gets out because he's he's defending and attacking and falling between two stools. I hardly ever see Coley drag on. That's a man who's not thinking completely straight. And then the ball starts to reverse and immediately Cummins brings um, Stark back into the attack to take advantage of it. That's quicksilver decision-making. That's on the spot. The coach hasn't told you that. You just recognise it and you, and you go with it. And then in that early period of the Australian innings where the ball is doing a bit, You've got Shammy, who's been lethal to left-handers all the way through this tournament. Boomer bowling really good heat. They lose three wickets, but they go hard. And by six or seven overs in, the asking rate's down to four and a half and over. So from that point on, Labuschagne comes in at the perfect time to settle in. And every time it looks as though Australia needs a boundary, somehow Travis Head finds one. Just outstanding cricket. Great to watch. In the end, not a close game. But every wrinkle um, and every uh, every instant was uh, was was worth cherishing. What are we learning about Pat Cummins, the captain? Well, I always say this about captaincy: ninety percent of it is what we don't see. It's how the team is travelling, how the team is feeling about itself and each other. Uh, are they confident in one another? Are they coherent? Are they um, are they enthralled to the team plan? And a lot of that comes from the captain. A lot of that comes from his relationship with the coach and the, and, the, and the support staff. So just the way, the manner in which Australia tackled this World Cup was a testament to his captaincy. The 10%, which is tactical decision-making well, uh, like I said, you, uh, you have to make a lot of calls. Some you get right. If, you, if, you, if you're getting half right, you're doing well. Well, he got more than half right. He got them 100% right in that, uh, in that final. Uh, look, and one day cricket comes out of it well. You know, it, it, this, it's not set and forget captaincy in ODI cricket. You do have to think on your feet. Um, it's not something you can nut out in advance. And, uh, and Cummins showed that it can be done by a bowler as well as a batter. I feel like the story I most want to hear is what happened at zero and two when the team, yeah. there's no disguising yeah. how a team feels yeah. by the way a team's playing. And they dropped so many catches in that yeah. game against South Africa. And I would contrast that to how they fielded in the semifinal mm. and the final. So if that's a, if that's a guide, I, it, it, whether it's a, I don't know, is it a meeting? Is it, what is it that happens at zero to that changes? Well, I think the what, mood? I think what we're learning is that there is so much cricket being played now. The schedule is so intensive but human beings aren't robots. 
So there's a natural kind of rise and fall in intensity and players make their own judgments about what's important. Often players are coming back from no cricket at all. You know, they, they don't get a chance to sort of place themselves back into competition. They have to go from zero to 100. And that's difficult, even for players as experienced as, you know, a Mitchell Stark or a Josh Hazelwood. Uh, so uh, you, I think you'll probably get into the situation where teams tend to start a bit slower yep. these days um, and, you know, Maybe even look on preliminary engagements as 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 warm ups, which they now which they no longer get. Uh, but instantly, you know, once they this is a long tournament, you did realise that you had to be there at the end. Maybe subconsciously they were just hanging onto the reins a little bit early on. But uh, and yeah, there were periods where they looked absolutely done. Seven for ninety one, chasing against Afghanistan. Well. <laughs> I mean, that's just, that's as remarkable an innings as I think I've ever seen, certainly yes. in ODI cricket. Yep. The the final itself, the demonstration of India's cricketing might and beyond, like mm. the, even the choreography of what time the Prime Minister was going mm-hmm. to arrive and how delicious that he arrived at the moment where you just knew Australia was going to win. That The Pat Cummins grabbing the lead up, there's nothing more satisfying than hearing a big crowd go silent. So yeah. feel like that will yeah. pass into folklore. Yes, it will. I mean, having been at uh, Modi Stadium early this year for the Test match for a, for a for a five day game, they could frankly still be playing, yes, which, yes. which was so boring and uh, and the and the and the and the play so monotonous. We barely got through two innings. Uh, it's not terribly sympathetic ground, I must say. Uh, if you'd not been there before, it could be a bit intimidating. But of course, Australia had, and a lot of these players have played IPL. Um, they know exactly what they're what they're in for. So you have to come up with ways to respond. And, and Cummins's line about the satisfaction of silencing a crowd was, was well considered because when the crowd find, found themselves silent, what did they do? They couldn't fool themselves into believing that they could make a noise. That was genuine mass dejection. Yes. Mm. Yes, oh, I love it. It was. The, so they couldn't get going during India's batting mm. after the mm. first assault. And then they got going when Australia was three for 47 and every ball had so much on it. But then it reminded me just a fraction of um, preliminary final night where Collingwood had the whole crowd against the Giants and they weren't playing very well. Yeah. And you can feel the groans <laughs> from the stand pouring mm. onto the field. They know they're not playing very well. Oh, and by the way, 90,000 people are making it perfectly yeah. clear that you're not playing yeah. very well. And as I've never... From 70 runs out, there was a certainty that Australia was going to win. Mm. I can't ever remember mm. feeling that in, no. a, in a game no. in India before. No. It reminded me a little bit of the 2007 grand final, Jerry. <laughs> I don't think I believed until we were halfway through the last quarter that, it, that Geelong was going to win that game. What do you think, uh, I don't know whether you've sampled it, what do you think the reaction in, the, in India would be, given that this whole construct was around their might? It's a good question. Um, I filed a piece yesterday for uh, for The Wire in India where I tried to keep the schadenfreude out of my voice, but it was admittedly quite difficult. Uh, I think, I think, I mean, in hindsight, it, it is awfully obvious what a, um, uh, what a propaganda exercise the whole World Cup was. I mean, the very fact that it was a World Cup with 10 teams, I mean, that's ridiculous. It was India plus nine extras, nine cones for, for India to, uh, to to run around. 
and the fact that there were no foreign spectators there at all. In the final, you know, we kept going to these three blokes in their yellow jumpers. Yeah. I don't know. I'd love to know how they got in. Uh, it was just so awfully obvious uh, what was what was going on that afterwards, I think the reaction has to be. Um, well, I'm hoping that it's uh, isn't this wonderful, you know, how unexpected sport result could be. But I suspect there will be some recriminations uh, along the line. Uh, they kept flashing also on the commentary to the to the BCCI box, you know, full of potentates and celebrities and people leaping to their feet and uh, for choreographed applause, like people, you know, at a speech of Stalin's. Uh, but, you know, and there is a certain amount of satisfaction to be derived from seeing people so disappointed. The, even the presentation, which I think I could watch that presentation over and over, is the Prime Minister has very little interest in handing the trophy mm. over to mm-hmm. Australia. Yeah. And then the, chore- the choreography of it is... Pat Cummins is stuck with the two politicians yep. while the fireworks all fly. Yeah. So in the moment where the team is supposed to be there yep. and filling the air, no, no, we're going yeah. through this. Oh, and then they all had to shake their hand before they could join Pat yep. Cummins up on the stage, which I guess fits in with what you saw on day one at that same I think by most by that stage, most Indian punters had turned off there. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so I, I loved this World Cup. I'm sort of happy. Yeah. I thought the cricket was... Um, enthralling mm. largely, and the time zone worked perfectly. Yeah. You could watch the first innings at seven thirty, yeah. and then yep. Yep. Um, was it was it a good World Cup? Uh, I still have reservations about a ten team World Cup. I think it's a bit of a contradiction in terms. It's like a tall, short man. Uh, you know, there were there are forty eight competitors in the next football World Cup. That genuinely feels like a global sport. This still feels like a bit of an elite racket to me. And the fact is that. The, the major nations don't really want to support the smaller nations because that means that the pie is carved up more ways. And the other unsatisfactory thing about it, I think, is that you know four in ten dollars that the cup makes will go straight back to India because of the way in which the finances of global cricket are um, are constructed. Uh, it's it's just basically a giant sluice in which the you know the, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. So yeah, that, it was very satisfying. Some of the cricket on the field, I enjoyed, really enjoyed watching Afghanistan and the Netherlands. Um, they're always the games that, that I, I take the most interest in. But in the end, it feels a little bit uh, much ado about nothing. Um, you know, it's it, did it really feel like the cricket world on display? I didn't think so. The the future of fifty over cricket from here. Well, it's going to be good. At, it's still going to be good in, in multilateral events yep. like this. Uh, I, I think you know, nothing satisfies like a World Cup, but I think the same doubts uh, hang over bilateral ODI cricket, which is, is less meaningful than, than ever. Uh, and I think in the, in the cycle between 2019 and 23, uh, a lot of the leading players didn't play at all. Now, that was, that was where boards took the opportunity to rest their players you only need to look at Pat Cummins. You know, he only, I think he only captained two um, Australian games before he went into this into this World Cup. Uh, we're also got that to that moment where there's going to be a natural runoff of of senior players after a World Cup. Lots of players retire in the wake. We already know some of them. There will be more. Uh, so, you know, who are going to be the starring attractions for for ODI cricket in future? If it's going to be sort of half the first eleven and six ringers. 
uh, every time a, a nation takes the field. And the last element is, is from this moment in time, if we forecast forward, what level of affection do you think Australia winning this World Cup in these circumstances will garner as time goes on? Well, look, sometimes I think we mistake our middle-aged malaise for a general popularity uh, call on the, on, the, on the game of cricket. I mean, ODI cricket has always been popular in India. That's why they were so desperate to, uh, to, to win it. Uh, I think it's still a good entertainment proposition. It's just got to have meaning. And that's what the World Cup lends us. You know, in the end, there is the satisfaction of crowning a world champion. It doesn't come much bigger in sport. But for bilateral ODI cricket in Australia, I still think that the jury's out on that. Mm. Mm. And, we've, and we've lived that fairly graphically mm, in recent yeah. times. And this team's accomplishment, so I feel like 87 for um, – sort of how foreign it was and how novel yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, 99, yeah. we've always clung yeah. to 99, yeah. probably above all others. Mm. I felt like in the first blush yesterday, this eclipsed all else for the circumstances that Australia had to navigate in the, in the final itself. It was bloody good. It, and, and it defined itself in, in contradistinction to that period, 99 to 2007, where we just seemed to turn up and everyone else seemed to lie down. You know, uh, the, the sheer scale of the event, the sheer monolithic nature of, of the Indian support and the sense of predestiny around the whole yep. cup makes Australia's achievement all the worthier. Gideon Haig is in the studio. We're going to tell you about his two books, The Girl in Cabin 350 and The Recall of Ashes 2023, a cricket classic coming up. Melbourne's weather, cloudy, a top of 20 for city power, supply and power to homes in the CBD and inner suburbs. Now, back to Waitley. Robinson the Cummins steers it down to third man. It's got plenty on it. Will it reach the rope? They'll get at least a couple. Dive in. It's full run. No. It's knocked no. over the boundary rope. <laughs> Pat Cummins drops his battered helmet and wheels away in celebration. As he should. Australia, where they fell two runs short on this ground in 2005 due to a stunning unbeaten stand of 55 here this afternoon. For the ninth wicket, Cummins and Lyon have led Australia to one of their greatest Ashes victories by two wickets. It transports us back to Edgbaston, and it is the image on the front of Gideon Haig's Ashes 2023 book, a cricket classic. Pat Cummins' helmet already dropped, bat in midair as those winning runs are registered. So it, it takes us back, Gideon, to the God, one of the series of our lifetime. Uh, even-handedly, the English edition features Joe Root playing a reverse ramp on the cover. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I was writing simultaneously for two newspapers. I was running for The Australian and for The Times. So uh, I gave them the same copy. I got very interestingly different responses to it, particularly at Lord's, as I, uh, as I recall. So this is um, the anthology of the columns that you wrote in real time? In real time, I also wrote match reports um, after each game, which um, and uh, and some linking pieces uh, along the way about uh, about being on tour because you know it's still the tour. Yep. It's still it's still you still feel like you're in another country. Sometimes when you're in another country on a on a cricket tour, you just feel like you're in cricket land. You never see anything of uh, of what's surrounding you. But England, there's still the opportunity to uh, to take in the surrounds. I played some games over there. I went to some interesting places. Pete. Lawler and I were podcasting, and uh, it was a serious travel as well as uh, sporting experience. How do you, with with the months that have passed, 
uh, and it is one of the series of our mm. lifetimes. Um, how do you how do you think back on it as a as a whole before we pick out the individual? Well, instances? so I'm glad I've done the book because you know these things do disappear quickly down the memory hole, uh, uh, and it was compelling uh, that some of the longest days of sports writing I can remember games days that went very very late uh, for very very close results. You know, Test match cricket tends to blow margins out. Uh, because over the course of five days, a definitively good team can can put a fair distance between themselves and an ordinary team. These games went into the last hour each time with all uh, results possible. The only test match that was one-sided was the, was the Old Trafford game, which was washed out. Um, so uh, as a sports writer, you're always thinking, um, I'm as good as my material. Uh, you, you can't turn, you know, strawberry jam into caviar, These, this, this was caviar. You just had to provide the bread for it. Yep. And it was absolutely delicious. It was like 2005. I was there for 2005 writing for The Guardian. That I thought was going to be my benchmark sporting experience. But I think 2023 might have been even better. Is it day five at Lord's? Is that the day? Well, that was hilarious that day. Uh, it's, um, yeah. I was watching it. Through the glasses, um, as Bairstow wandered out of his ground, and I saw the stumps break, and I saw him look over his shoulder in consternation. I thought, oh, you're out, mate. You're out. There's absolutely no doubt. And you know it. And you know it. Uh, and you're looking around in panic for someone to save you, but you know that you can't be saved. So they wander off, and about five minutes later, Athers comes over, and he says, in that sort of Athers way, so what do you think? I said, it's out. He said, yeah, every day of the week in league cricket in Manchester. The, yeah, okay, well, that's the sensible view. But unfortunately, there was a huge divergence of opinion between, I think, those who, who had a close relationship to cricket, professional cricketers, that kind of the, 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 the punditocracy, um, the former England captains even, who were unanimous that, uh, that Bairstow was out, and people whose acquaintance with Cricket is more kind of distant, but also emotional, uh, who felt, who, who probably fell back on national stereotypes. Uh, for the English, it was an example of the Australians, you know, they always take things a little bit too far. And in, um, and the Australians always, and also the Australians thinking, oh, the English, they're just so precious. You know, really, they should just get over themselves. It was kind of hard to, it was, it was a very, complete cleaving of opinion. It was very hard to find um, a middle ground. I played a game the day afterwards for the Authors 11 at, uh, at Berkeley Park. So I was the Aussie there. And uh, I, did a, I did a Vox Pops beforehand. Um, what did they think? Everyone thought it was out because um, they're cricketers, because they're cricketers and they're, and they're sensible. But when we were out in the field, a wicket fell uh, late in the day and the, uh, the new batsman took a fair while to get to the crease and in our celebratory huddle, someone said, oh, we should appeal for timed out. <laughs> and they all looked at me and said, oh, let's leave it to the Australian. Now that's what they'd expect of him. Did it change life on the streets, the, the, the environment around the test matches? Did you think oh, it was already yeah. hostile? Um, from well, what... actually, I mean, in the lead up to that, there'd been people complaining that it was too polite. Okay. But the, t the two teams were getting on too well, that there was a little bit of an absence of needle, a bit of a lack of competitiveness. Well, that was fixed 
overnight. Uh, and the crowds were poor after that. The crowds were the crowd was terrible on that last day at Lords. Um, and of course, the behaviour by the members was was absolutely obscene. You kept sort of waiting for someone to laugh, but no. <laughs> it was deeply, deeply earnest and heartfelt. And I went on Talkback Radio on a few occasions and people were very emotional about it. I suspect they were emotional about more things. I, I thought England this summer was felt more brittle than, than I can remember it before. I, I don't know whether it's the cumulative impacts of Brexit and, and two years of COVID house arrest, uh, but there was a there was a feeling somehow that they were just bit chippy, spoiling for a fight. And if it hadn't been this, maybe it would have been something else. Do you, and you wrote about the crowds and yeah. about previous experiences in England. Is there a risk that we return the favour in a couple of years' yeah, time? I say there will be, yeah. I'd like to think that we would set a better example. I, I actually think that crowds in Australia over the last few years have been pretty good. The, um, the incidences of misbehaviour have been pretty isolated. In fact, sometimes I feel that the, all the sort of killjoy ordinances out there have spoiled the fun of being in an Australian crowd. But, uh, but the fact that the response in England kind of passed without very much comment and was sort of completely unregulated, and Australians were just regarded as, as sport, uh, was a bit galling. If an Indian player had stumped Bairstow under those circumstances at Lords, you wouldn't have heard boo. Right. You wouldn't have dared. You wouldn't have dared take on the, the might of India. There is a feeling that Australians are just fair game and they should. They just have to suck it up. It's more than just the action that happens on the field with cricket. I so felt quite Republican case. afterwards. Uh, <laughs> Very <laughs> nice. Uh, more with Gideon after Nathan in the newsroom. I thought the decision to define baseball in the dictionary missed the whole point. Mm. is just the most bland idea of it's attacking cricket. No, no, no. It is mm. so much more than yeah. that. What do you yeah. think Basball is having lived through it? Well, we went on a bit of a journey because um, we, we were the great Basball sceptics when we arrived. We thought, okay, you've been able to do it against these other sides, but wait till you do it against Australia. Well, they did it against Australia and they just kept on doing it. Uh, I never thought I would see two teams approach cricket so differently. You know, they scored at 4.74 runs and over. Over the course of a five-test series, they allowed us to bowl one maiden every 19 overs. Uh, and we we considered one maiden every five when we were batting. Um, we scored at 3.3 and over. It was it was like watching an ideological argument for, uh, for, for test cricket, with both teams absolutely dedicated to, uh, to, to the mode that they were they were following. Uh, I think the Austra I'd be interested to know what the Australians think of it in hindsight. I wouldn't be surprised if you see Australia play slightly more attacking yes. cricket this summer because you know it, there's no doubt it was fun, and it um, and the England team did get a lot of momentum out of it um, and and a lot of unity out of it. The fact that everyone had to sign up to the plan. There were no there were no atheists in foxholes where baseball was concerned. <laughs> Did England win the drawn series? Yeah, I suspect they did. Yeah, I hate to admit it, but they probably did. I think if there'd been another test match, I think it would have gone England's way. 
obviously Manchester was overwhelmingly in their favour and it would have been amazing if they had won. If they'd won from 2-0 down, um, the only time that's happened since 1936-7, that would have been remarkable. But in the end, I thought it was probably a fair result. Even though England played exhilarating cricket in those first two test matches, it was error-strewn cricket. You know, they got wickets with no balls, they dropped catches. Uh, there was that impetuous declaration from uh, from Stokes in the first test. Uh, they made mistakes and allowed Australia to get back into games that Australia had no right to. So uh, when they were 2-0 down, and but to their credit, they're 2-0 down and they just say, well, we're just coming back for more. We're not modifying our approach at all. They bring Mark Wood in and he's just a revelation. Oh, it's just something about watching super quick, raw pace bowling. And he was exhilarating in those last three test matches. Amazing that he played three in a row because he, he found it very difficult to string consecutive test matches together. But he was outstanding to watch. He was like the Jofra Archer of, uh, of, of 2019. And, you know, and that last day at the Oval... Well, you just wouldn't have been anywhere else in the cricket world. It was just astounding how many emotions you went through that day. Uh, I thought Stuart Broad incredibly audacious to announce in advance that it was going to be his final day of cricket. That could so easily have blown up in his face. But amazingly, just occasionally, cricket goes to plan. Are we allowed to lament the ball change or as Athers points out, is that where we become the whinging Aussies? Yeah, look, I didn't, in the end, I don't think there was any sharp practice involved on that last day. It was, it was, we, there was a ball change in the third test match where Australia got an advantageous one and Mitch Marsh suddenly started to, to swing it around and he got Zach Crawley out. These things are always a bit of a lottery. Uh, In the end, it was a relatively brief period when that ball swung. Anderson the best swing bowler of all time didn't swing it at all, so there was something about Wokes and uh, and and Wood in that offing that, that that goes to their skill, not simply to their opportunistic, uh, the advent of a, of a of a newer ball. All right, that's Ashes twenty twenty three, a cricket classic. It's a series that will be studied for years to come, and this will be a centerpiece of it. Um, more favoured in this instance, I think. So, if you've read Gideon's certain admissions. A bohemian scandal, or the night was a bright moonlight and I could see a man quite plain. We'll tell you next about the girl in cabin in cabin three fifty. This is, um, it's a remarkable story and it's a study of proper journalism, which I'm happy to tell you about with Gideon next. Waitley for Hyundai, the Hyundai 2023 SUV event is on now and Host Plus. Waitley on SEN. Gideon Haig's writing is so much more than sport. If you have collected in recent years certain admissions, a bohemian scandal, the night was a bright moonlight and I could see a man quite plain with the cricket bat as the murder weapon, I add the girl in cabin 350 dossier of a disappearance. Um, I don't want to tell the story of this book, Gideon. I do want to thoroughly recommend it to people. Um, But I don't want to spoil much of what's in here. But just give me a, a snapshot of who is Gwenda... McCullum. Okay. Well, well, I'll tell you how I came upon the story. I was launching a book late last year by um, by the journalist Michael Cannon, um, a posthumous memoir. And in it, he described meeting 1949 in Melbourne. He met a young woman called uh, Gwenda, uh, whom he um, befriended, attempted unsuccessfully to seduce, uh, then lost touch with. And then about a month later, 
He gets a copy of the Afternoon Herald and there is her photo on the front page. She has disappeared from the ocean liner Orchides as it travelled from Sydney to Melbourne. The, uh, the, she had gone to Sydney. She was coming back to Melbourne with a whole gang of people who were coming to Melbourne for the Melbourne Cup. Uh, so um, in those days, there was enormous ceremony and, uh, and pageantry about an ocean liner leaving dock. But with this, uh, with with the spring racing carnival in the offing, it turned into a bit of a, uh, a bit of an extravaganza, um, a very inebriated, very celebratory, uh, with punting going on by radio on deck uh, as the, as the ship travelled. Scene that you've written, and the night got out of hand. The next morning, the uh, her cabin door was opened by the steward, and she wasn't there. Um, and the mystery was never solved. And I thought, gee, that's an interesting story. I've got to find out more about this. And the only way I'm going to find out more is if I write a book about it. So I set to finding out how you do it. And often it's the case that you don't know how you're going to write these books when you, uh, when you begin with. It's just a case of following every trail until you can go no further. How me- So this the beauty of this book is you don't quite realise which rabbit hole you're going down until you've taken us down them, yeah. which in real time, how much can you learn from a coroner's inquest to divorce papers? Yeah, how yeah, much- yeah. How do, you, how do you know where to look? Well, you always go first looking for the family. You think there must be some sort of family connection. So you go about putting together a genealogy for the family and trying to trace the descendants. And that's long, laborious, hard work with a lot of dry gullies along the way. But I did actually manage to get in touch with, uh, with Gwenda's descendants, uh, the children of her brother and sister. They all knew a little bit of the story, not all of it. It had been a well-kept secret in the family. They all had little aspects of it. Interestingly, none of them were talking to one another at the time. The family um, is a bit fragmented and they're all estranged. So they'd never actually discussed it in the, in the family circle. So it was, they were quite interested in, in what I might discover. Then you start, there was also a branch of the family that, um, that they knew nothing about. Uh, and interestingly, there was a woman called Gwenda in it. I thought, oh, that's too interesting. Two Gwendas in the same family on opposite sides. I have to know more about this. I traced a descendant through uh, a probate file and then through the electoral rolls. Uh, I found that there was still a telephone number for a man called S.F. Thomas in the, uh, in the phone book. I wrote letters to that address, didn't get a reply, thought, okay, there's nothing for it. Out of suburban Melbourne, took two and a half hours to get there on a train, a tram and walking. No one there. I put a note under the, um, under the door. Uh, and a couple of days later, I get an email from S.F. Thomas, who now lives in the Philippines, who has rented the house out to four young blokes, but they have recognised my name as a sports journalist and said, oh, Gideon Hayek's trying to get on to you. Uh, you should give him a ring. So I all of a sudden found out about this other family. This other family was never acknowledged that was fundamental to, uh, to, to the story. Look, it was such fun to do. Uh, but I never took my eye off the fact that it was a profound tragedy yep. and it had huge impacts on the family. In some respects, the, the family's fragmentation is a result of, of that day, of this, this mystery that was never resolved, this secret that they were never able to talk about. 
uh, and this unacknowledged person, this gap in the uh, in the family circle. It's boots on the ground, old mm. school journalism. Is there was there one primary uh, document piece of information that I don't know that you were that you knew you were searching for, or maybe more interestingly that you didn't know that you were searching for that lands in front of you along the way that, that took your breath away? Oh, there were some astounding ones. Like, um, okay, so Gwenda had worked at, uh, at a Methodist hospital, uh, maternity hospital, and I thought, well, maybe there are records to do with it. So I wrote to the uh, Uniting Church uh, archives to see if they had records of that particular hospital, and yes, in fact, they did. And not only that, but they had a scrapbook of photographs from that hospital, which had recently been donated by another nurse. And there she was, pictures of Gwenda, looking beautiful, looking very attractive, looking terribly vivacious with her whole life ahead of her. And to hold that in my hand, well, that was, um, that was just astounding. And then there was the watch. Her watch survived in the family's care that she was given on, uh, on her 19th birthday. And to hold that was to feel uncannily connected to this uh, this thwarted life. Um, look, it was a fantastic journey. Um, that's part of the fun of journalism, isn't it, Jared? You start off not knowing where it's going to take you. You just have to go with it. You have to go with the story. Nothing is foreordained. You might find out something. You might not. Uh, but in the end, it's just terribly rewarding. And it's it's. I love the idea of the dossier of a, a disappearance. Mm. There's theatre life in Melbourne from the yeah, time. Yeah. There's fantastical stories of battlefields and war mm, adventures. Yeah, so yeah. it's amazing in the different directions. Nightlife in Sydney. Um, it, it actually gives you a really interesting glimpse of Melbourne in this in this period. That, and that period between 1945 and 1956 and the advent of television, there are a lot of people out on the streets in Melbourne of a night because you have to go out and find your own entertainment. So all sorts of paths are crossing. That's the story of certain admissions, my yep. book on, uh, on another 1949 murder case. And it just so happened, this was obviously meant to be, the detective who investigated in certain admissions was the same one who investigated in The Girl in Cabin 350. My mother-in-law and I love these books, Gideon. James, so speak to James here. Okay, I'm sucked in. Where can I get it? Okay. Uh, well, just go to my website, gideonhaig.com, email me, and uh, and I'll give you all the details. All right. There's little piles of books we want to help. Um, They're in my kitchen. Down. My mother's looking at them very severely. So Gideon's website, The Girl in Cabin 350. Thanks for coming. It's great to see you. Cheers, Jared. See you across the, the summer of cricket. Gideon Haig in the studio.